0: Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani State of Mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever
1: you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips With big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So, subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is the final episode in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. Today, we're going to wrap up this series by talking about the central Manson murder trial in which Vincent Bugliosi prosecuted Charlie, Susan, Pat, and Leslie for the seven murders that occurred on the nights of August 8th and 9th, 1969. This trial consumed the interest of the nation for a year and a half, matching or eclipsing the press attention accorded to events that happened that year, like the shooting of student protesters at Kent State and the gradual withdrawal of American troops from Cambodia and Vietnam. Amongst those drawn into the orbit of the trials were three filmmakers, each of whom would incorporate their encounters with the Manson family into later works. We have a lot to get to, so join us, won't you, for the trial of the Manson family. The key witnesses in the Manson trials were people Manson had at some point trusted, people he had either welcomed into his family or had otherwise allowed into his orbit. Two Manson girls, Linda Kasabian and Mary Brenner, both of whom had left Manson and left California, going to other states to raise their babies, agreed to testify about the Tate, Hinman, and Shorty Shea murders in exchange for immunity. Barbara Hoyt didn't need immunity because she hadn't been a party to any of the killings, but she had information about Shea's murder, and she was happy to share it. But the key informant was supposed to be Susan Atkins. Investigators taped Susan, giving an account of the Cielo Drive murders in which she downplayed her own involvement, but still told investigators enough useful information that they were initially willing to negotiate a plea deal. On December 4th, 1969, Susan was promised that if she were to testify to a grand jury, she herself would be immune from the death penalty in all three murder cases in which she was involved. District Attorney Vincent Buliosi met with Susan at her attorney's office that night. She told Buliosi that even though Charlie was in jail, he could see and hear everything they were doing at that moment in that room. Buliosi started to get worried that his whole case could live or die on a young lady who was, as he put it, Probably not legally insane, but crazy nonetheless. The next day, in front of the grand jury, the details Susan provided were so graphic that they made at least one juror physically gag. She told a different story than the ones she had regaled her jailhouse roommates with. To the grand jury, Susan said that Tex had ordered her to kill Sharon Tate, but... I couldn't. When asked if she was in the habit of doing whatever Charlie told her to do, Susan said that she had been. Later, she said, I wanted you to understand that Charlie always told us, you do what you want to do. If you do not want to do it, do not do it. But when he would ask me to do something, I felt I had to go ahead and do it, because I know he would do the same thing for me. Otherwise, you wouldn't ask me to do it." With that said, regarding August 8th, 1969, Susan testified, "...I never recall getting any actual instructions from Charlie, other than getting a change of clothing and a knife, and I was told to do exactly what Tex told me to do." A couple of days later, after also hearing testimony from Greg Jacobson, Danny DiCarlo, and Manson girls Ruth Ann, Diane, and Nancy, The grand jury issued indictments on seven counts of murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder for Charles Manson, Charles Watson, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel. Leslie Van Hooden was indicted on two counts of murder for her involvement in the LaBianca killings and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. On December 9th, Charles Manson was formally charged in Inyo County, and transported to the county jail in downtown Los Angeles. By the time he arrived, a huge crowd of onlookers had gathered, inside and outside the building. Manson was dressed in his buckskin suit that had been sewn together for him by his girls, underneath a head-to-toe wrapping of heavy chains. As cameras flashed and strangers gawked, Manson didn't look angry, or scared, or scary. He looked cool, and almost happy. Finally, he was getting the attention he for so long felt he so richly deserved. Of course, most of the media attention wasn't exactly friendly. Manson, his family, and their activities became a boogeyman, something critics of the counterculture could point to as undeniable proof of the evils of long hair, free love, psychedelic drugs, and rock and roll. Though Manson's attack on the establishment wasn't aligned with any kind of legitimate political point of view, it was easy enough to use him as a symbol to disparage legitimate student protesters and activists who maybe advocated for things in the Manson ballpark, say communal living, but for the most part, just kind of looked like him. And because so many of the attacks on Manson included wholesale attacks on hippies and other disaffected youth, a backlash started to swell. A lot of people started to wonder if Manson was an innocent man who was being persecuted for daring to live outside of conventional society. Some members of the family chose to protect themselves over putting the family first. Tex Watson, in jail in Texas, successfully fought extradition to Los Angeles for months, despite pleas from the Manson girls to join them in presenting a united front. After Bobby Beausoleil's first trial ended with a hung jury, The star witness at his second trial was Mary Brunner, the very first Manson girl, who testified against Bobby in trade for immunity against prosecution for being an accessory to the murder of Gary Hinman. Mary later returned to the Manson fold and tried to recant her testimony, but Bobby had already been sentenced to death and sent to San Quentin. But Charlie didn't need to worry too much about losing family members because there were still members of the Manson family who weren't in jail and who weren't guilty of any crime that could be traced back to them, and they were keeping the family spirit alive. Sandy and Squeaky convinced Manson's old prison buddy, Phil Kaufman, to give the still faithful Manson family members a place to stay. That worked for a while, but when Phil kicked them out, they ended up back at Spawn Ranch, where Squeaky started organizing media visits. Though their ranks had been decimated by defections and arrests, with Manson in the news all the time, suddenly new people wanted to join the family. In fact, Charlie was inundated in jail with mail from teenage girls asking his permission for them to follow him. Just as he used his previous stints in jail to absorb the disparate influences that would form the backbone of his preachings, Charlie used his pre-trial imprisonment to figure out what role he would play going into the courtroom. In terms of media attention, getting charged with murder was the biggest break Charles Manson ever had, and he knew it. He was determined to put on a show. Manson did everything he could to be able to direct the proceedings, as well as star in them. He insisted on defending himself, which the judge in the case called a sad and tragic mistake, although he allowed it. Manson also exercised the control he still wielded over his women to convince them that he, Charles Manson, knew what was best for them and not their lawyers. And that's why Leslie fired her lawyer when he tried to get her examined by a psychiatrist. Charlie was allowed to appear before the judge multiple times before the trial actually began to make demands and make scenes, and each instance reinvigorated the press cycle. In January 1970, Manson told the judge that his incarceration violated
2: spiritual, mental, and physical liberty in an unconstitutional manner, not in harmony with man's or God's law.
1: And demanded that the charges against him be dropped. To which the judge responded, And disappoint all these people? Never, Mr. Manson. Days later, in court again, the judge informed Manson that the trial was scheduled to begin February 9th. Manson refused to enter a plea, which the court considered equivalent to a plea of not guilty. Eventually, the judge rescinded his promise to allow Manson to defend himself, calling Manson incompetent, and assigning a prestigious litigator to the case. But Charlie fired that guy and hired Ronald Hughes, an acquaintance with no trial record to speak of. Charlie liked Hughes because he would be easy to overpower. It was the next best thing to representing himself. And then Charlie thought better of it, fired Hughes, who went on to defend Leslie Van Hooten, and hired a real defense attorney for himself named Irving Kanarek. Charlie eventually managed to get the original judge removed from the case on the grounds that he had exercised prejudice when he had declared Charlie unfit to represent himself. Charlie showed his respect for the new judge by turning his back to him in the courtroom. When Charlie refused to face the judge, he was removed from the courtroom. And in an obviously prearranged protest, one by one, Pat, Susan, and Leslie stood and turned their backs to the judge too. A few days later, when the defendants returned to the courtroom, the judge warned them that such antics were bound to alienate a jury. Charlie stretched his arms out in a crucifixion pose and said, You leave me nothing, you can kill me now. The three girls assumed the same pose and Charlie was dragged from the courtroom, literally kicking and screaming. When Susan shouted, You might as well kill us now because we are not going to get a fair trial. The judge ordered that the women be removed as well, and they chanted, Kill Kill us! Kill us! us, kill us, kill Kill us! As they went. Charlie's meddling with the course of justice was pretty effective, and it was just one reason why, behind the scenes, prosecutors were scrambling. Tex was still in Texas, and no one knew when or even if he would be extradited to California. And even with the preponderance of evidence, the prosecution wasn't initially sure what their case was. Vincent Bugliosi was determined to use helter-skelter, Manson's made-up race war, as the motive. Other members of the DA's office thought it was too outlandish that they were better off calling the murders robberies gone wrong, even though the killers had barely robbed anything. Still loyal to Charlie, the remaining free Manton girls visited Susan often, and eventually convinced her to fire her attorney, who had recommended that she cooperate with the prosecution, and refuse to testify against Charlie. With the loss of their star witness, the prosecution offered a total immunity deal to Linda Kasabian, who was nine months pregnant, in exchange for her testimony. In February, the LA Times ran a report from quote-unquote investigators detailing Manson's Beatles-inspired helter-skelter theory. If Bugliosi didn't feed this story to the paper himself, he certainly benefited from the local paper of record spelling out his preferred case months before jury selection. And Manson thought he was launching a counterstrike by agreeing to what he thought was going to be a loving profile in Rolling Stone— in which he could explain helter-skelter in his own words and tie his theories about revolution and his current predicament to other current events, including the then-ongoing trial of the Chicago 7 for inciting riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. At Charlie's suggestion, the Rolling Stone writers went to Spawn Ranch, where the remaining family members were neither the free-love innocents nor the brainwashed zombies that various reports had made them out to be. By now, they were media-savvy enough to refuse to talk for free. They were also pissed off that the Beatles hadn't come to their defense yet. One family member asked the Rolling Stone reporter to give the Beatles their phone number and tell the band to call the ranch. Charlie's legal team had already sent letters to Apple Records and even contemplated calling each individual Beatle as a witness. But by April 1970, the Beatles themselves were no more. The media interest in him had revived Manson's rock star dreams. He again started to believe that the endgame of everything he had done and continued to do could be Beatles-level stardom. He ordered Squeaky to find Dennis Wilson and get him to hand over the tapes he had of Charlie's music so that they could be released. Squeaky found Dennis Wilson and told him to give her the tapes or die. Wilson's tapes had already been commandeered by Bugliosi, but they were able to get a hold of the tapes made by Greg Jacobson, and Phil Kaufman agreed to put those out. Kaufman spent his own money to press 2,000 copies of an album, and Squeaky wrote the liner notes. The album is called Lie, and it was released the same day the Weathermen accidentally blew up a townhouse in Greenwich Village while making a bomb intended for a military event in New Jersey. Phil Kaufman went around to all the local indie record stores and head shops trying to get them to stock Charlie's album, but in a sign that the countercultural tide was starting to turn, they all refused. Eventually, Wojciech Frykowski's family got a court order through which they were able to garnish any proceeds from the record. Today, you can buy it on iTunes. The trial finally began on June 15, 1970, beginning with five weeks of jury selection. Two weeks into it, Rolling Stone released their profile of Manson, And he didn't come off as the noble rebel hero that he imagined himself to be. In fact, he came off as pretty crazy. By the time the trial was ready to get underway for real in late July, Charlie decided to embrace the crazy. He appeared in court on the first day with a bloody letter X carved into the center of his forehead. This was explained by a printed statement, which Charlie had arranged to have handed out to spectators, in which he claimed,
2: I have exed myself from your world. No man or lawyer is speaking for me. I speak for myself. I am not allowed to speak with words, so I have spoken with the mark I will be wearing on my forehead.
1: By the end of the day, Charlie had offered a bailiff $100,000, and each of the three female defendants had offered him their bodies, if he would help them escape. By the end of the first week, Pat, Susan, and Leslie had all carved X's into their own foreheads, as had many of the non incarcerated Manson girls who sat outside the courthouse every day. Others showed their loyalty to Charlie in more devious ways. Ruth Ann Morehouse kept busy badgering Barbara Hoyt, who was going to testify that she had heard Susan bragging about the murders. Eventually, Ruth Ann promised Barbara that she'd take her to Hawaii if she refused to testify. Barbara agreed, and after a few days together in Honolulu, Ruth Ann said that she had to leave, but told Barbara she could stay. At the airport, Ruth Ann bought Barbara a hamburger. Just before she got on the plane, Ruth Ann said to Barbara, Just imagine if there were ten tabs of acid in your hamburger. Minutes later, Barbara collapsed. Before she passed out, she croaked, Call Mr. Bugliosi. When she recovered, Barbara became more determined than ever to testify. Her insider knowledge of the family was damning, as was the testimony of Juan Flynn, who said on the stand that he had heard Charlie admit his involvement. In the murders. On July 27th, star witness Linda Kasabian was called to the stand. Bugliosi questioned Linda for four days, and by the third day, Charlie had started making throat slitting gestures while she spoke. On cross examination, Manson's lawyer accused Linda of frying her brain with drugs and tried to shame her for participating in orgies on Spawn Ranch. Linda remained lucid and consistent throughout her 17 days on the stand, although some Manson truthers insist her testimony actually incriminates Tex Watson whilst absolving Manson. While Linda was testifying, the defense team got a gift when President Richard Nixon, while giving a speech in Denver, criticized the media for making a star out of Manson. Nixon said,
2: Here is a man who was guilty, Uh, directly or indirectly, of eight murders, without reason. Uh, Here's a man who, yet as far as the coverage was concerned, uh, appeared to be a rather glamorous figure, a glamorous figure to the young people whom he had brought into his uh, operations. The nightly news and newspapers tend to glorify and to make heroes out of those who, In criminal activities.
1: The jury was sequestered, so theoretically they wouldn't have heard about this. Except in court, Charlie somehow got hold of a newspaper with the front page headline, Manson guilty, Nixon declares. That afternoon, the three accused Manson girls stood up in court and asked the judge in unison, Your Honor! The The president president said said we are guilty, guilty, so so why why go on with the trial? The next day, bailiffs had to wrestle a hand-printed sign out of Charlie's hands. It read, Nixon guilty. Charlie's lawyer petitioned for a mistrial, but the judge denied the motion, and Linda's testimony continued for another two weeks. While she was on the stand, Linda wore a dress that had been bought for her by the writer Joan Didion, who Cassabian said, under oath, was writing a book about her. That didn't quite turn out to be the case, but Didion did write about Cassabian in the title essay to her collection, The White Album. During the summer of 1970, Didion spent many nights visiting Linda in jail, where she was being held in protective custody in advance of her scheduled testimony date. Didion found the visits to the prison to be completely unsettling.
0: Of these evenings, I remember mainly my dread at entering the prison, at leaving for even an hour the infinite possibilities I suddenly perceived in the summer twilight. I remember driving downtown on the Hollywood freeway with Gary Fleischman's Cadillac convertible with the top down. I remember watching a rabbit graze on the grass by the gate as Gary Fleischman signed the prison register. Each of the half-dozen doors that locked behind us as we entered Sybil Brand was a little death, and I would emerge after the interview like Persephone from the underworld, euphoric elated. Once home, I would have two drinks and make myself a hamburger and eat it ravenously.
1: The White Album is the Didion essay that begins with the famous aphorism, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. In writing about her connection to Linda Kasabian, Didion further explains that in order to make sense of the events we experience, we impose on them sentimental narratives to create meaning out of the senseless. This is the sentimental narrative Didion imposes on her connection to the Manson murders and to one of the star witnesses in Manson's trial.
0: On the morning of John Kennedy's death in 1963, I was buying at Ron Sohoff's in San Francisco a short silk dress in which to be married. A few years later, this dress of mine was ruined when at a dinner party in Bel Air, Roman Polanski accidentally spilled a glass of red wine on it. Sharon Tate was also a guest at this party, although she and Roman Polanski were not yet married. On July 27, 1970, I went to the Magnin High shop on the third floor of I-Magnin in Beverly Hills and picked out, at Linda Kasabian's request... The dress in which she began her testimony about the murders at Sharon Tate Polanski's house on Cielo Drive. Size nine, petite, her instructions read. Many, but not extremely many, in velvet if possible, emerald green or gold, or a Mexican peasant-style dress, smocked or embroidered. She needed a dress that morning because the district attorney, Vincent Bugliolsi, had expressed doubts about the dress she had planned to wear, a long, white, homespun shift. Long is for evening, he had advised Linda. Long was for evening, and white was for brides. At her own wedding in 1965, Linda Kasabian had worn a white brocade suit. Time passed. Times changed. Everything was to teach us something. At 11.20 on that July morning in 1970, I delivered the dress in which she would testify to Gary Fleischman, who was waiting in front of his office on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. He was wearing his pork pie hat, and he was standing with Linda's second husband, Bob Kasabian, and their friend, Charlie Melton, both of whom were wearing long, white robes. Long was for Bob and Charlie. The dress in the Magnon box was for Linda. The three of them took the Magnon box and got into Gary Fleischman's Cadillac convertible with the top down and drove off in the sunlight toward the freeway downtown, waving back at me. I believe this to be an authentically senseless chain of correspondences, but in the jingle jangle morning of that summer, it made as much sense as anything else did.
1: Didion wasn't the only person who is today a bold-faced name who was milling about during the trial. Major stars a year after the release of Easy Rider, Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson frequently sat in the courtroom, with Nicholson later taking notes on the proceedings, apparently thinking he'd use the notes as the basis of a screenplay. When Manton realized Dennis Hopper was in the building, he asked his lawyers if they could schedule a one-on-one visit between himself and the actor-director. Hopper had been close to Jay Sebring, so he was wary, but he went to see Manson anyway, passing through the passel of ex-marked Manson girls camped out outside the jail where Manson was being held. Hopper presumed Manson knew about him because of Easy Rider, but in fact, Manson told Hopper that he had been a fan of his since seeing him in the 1962 TV show, The Defenders, in which Hopper played a guy who killed his father in defense of his mother. Hopper asked Manson about the X carved into his forehead and into the foreheads of the girls, and asked him what it was for. Don't you read the newspapers, man? Manson responded.
2: All my followers have cut themselves like this, so when the Black Revolution comes, they'll know which ones are mine.
1: Hopper spent two hours with Manson. And while no film came directly out of the meeting, it seems to have left a mark on Hopper, who was at the time recently divorced from Hollywood royalty Brooke Hayward and nearing the peak of his drug addiction and egomania. Hopper had ridden the success of Easy Rider into a deal to make, The Last Movie, an unconventionally self-reflexive portrait of the making of a doomed film in Peru. By mid-1970, Hopper had taken the footage for the last movie back to his newly-acquired compound in New Mexico, where he'd spend the next year editing. This process was captured in The American Dreamer, a film by Lawrence Schiller and L.M. Kit Carson, which is variously described as a brutally candid documentary and an entirely staged meta-portrait of Hopper as a compulsive performer who was constantly distracted away from the creative work and nitty-gritty business of filmmaking— by his all-consuming, narcissistic obsession with sex. American Dreamer shows Hopper, hidden behind a mass of Manson-esque hair, living a kind of Manson-lite lifestyle. He's out in the middle of nowhere with plenty of guns, drugs, and lots of random young women who are there only to serve him. Sexually, sure, but also literally serve him. One of the girls who describes herself as a recent college graduate works for Hopper as a cook, and when she gets pissed off and storms off at one point, one of the directors from behind the camera asks Hopper, how many cooks have you had here? And the men all laugh. This is how Hopper, an American dreamer, describes his interaction with Charles Manson.
3: He said that, like, you know, he was a big star, and, like, his whole life... uh that he had been uh, acting out a movie but there hadn't been any movie cameras
0: yet. It's hard to say if that if he was acting that whole thing out you know then he has to just act himself right into the same situation of punishment you know where does he go from there? You know, Well he says that he's already him.
3: dead so not to worry about him and that you're dead too and that we're all dead. He blames it on society. He says if I did something then like you he know if I'm the garbage of society sort of if I'm your if I'm if I'm You know, if I'm your problem, if I'm your garbage, you made me your garbage. I think if you're going to get involved in evolution, man, then you have, uh, you know, which is like really gets to be very tricky because you have to do an awful lot of thinking, which I really don't have time to do. But if you're going to get involved in evolution, I would think that like there are times when you'd have to take some line.
1: You didn't have to be a delusional Hollywood star like Hopper to see something of yourself in Manson and his family. John Waters, later the director of Pink Flamingos, Hairspray, Crybaby, and the sadly underrated Terrorists in Hollywood satire Cecil B. Demented, drove across the country in 1970 for the premiere of his second feature, Multiple Maniacs, in which Divine and his crew take credit for murdering Sharon Tate. The day after the movie premiere... Waters started sitting in on the Manson trial. He wrote about this in his book, Role Models, published in 2010.
4: I became obsessed by the Sharon Tate murders from the day I read about them on the front page of the New York Times in 1969, as I worked behind the counter of the Provincetown bookshop. Later, when the cops finally caught the hippie killers and I actually saw their photos, arrest weirdo and Tate murder, screamed the New York Daily News headline, I almost went into cardiac arrest. God, God. The Manson family looked just like my friends at the time. The Manson family members were the hippies all our parents were scared we'd turn into if we didn't stop taking drugs. Sure, my friends went to riots every weekend in different cities in the 60s to get laid or get high, just like kids went to raves decades later. But God, this was a cultural war, not a real one. And the survivors of this time now realize we were in a play revolution, no matter what we spouted. But the Manson family, yikes, here was the real thing. Punk a decade too early. Dare I say it, yes, the filthiest people alive. I needed to know more. How had these kids from backgrounds so similar to mine committed in real life the awful crimes against peace and love that we were acting out for comedy in our films? In
1: 1971, after the main Manson trial was complete... Waters attended a hearing for some second-tiered Manson family members who had been arrested for robbery.
4: When about 15 of the Manson family were brought into court, handcuffed and chained together, women on one side and men on the other, many with their heads shaved, the atmosphere was electric with twisted evil beauty. Not having seen one another in about a year, the cultists started chanting. Jerkily gesturing and speaking to one another in a nonsensical language that only the family could understand. Sexy, scary, brain-dead, and dangerous, this gang of hippie lunatics gave new meaning to folie de grandeur, group madness and insanity that lasts as long as the same people are together and united. It was an amazing thing to see in person. Heavily influenced and actually jealous of their notoriety, I went back to Baltimore and made Pink Flamingos, which I wrote, directed, and dedicated to the Manson girls, Sadie, Katie, and
1: Les. Sadie, Katie, and Les, otherwise known as Susan, Pat, and Leslie, never got a chance to testify in their own defense at their trial. Their defense team didn't want them to, because they knew that even when they did speak English, they were still speaking a language that most people didn't understand. Susan, Leslie, and Pat went around their counsel and demanded that the judge let them testify. The plan was that they were going to take responsibility for the murders in order to absolve Charlie. The judge decided that the girls could speak if he removed the jury from the room. The girls then refused to speak, but Charlie took the opportunity to make a statement. He started from the beginning, talked about his childhood,
2: Never went to school, so never grew up to read or write too good. So I've stayed in jail, and I've stayed stupid.
1: The family, he said, was his attempt to make something from nothing, uniting and thus giving purpose in life to outcasts.
2: People that you did not want. People that were alongside the road that their parents had kicked out.
1: In a vague way, in the course of damning the court as a surrogate for the establishment, Charlie admitted his own guilt when he said,
2: I was working at cleaning up my house. Something that Nixon should have been doing. He should have been on the side of the road picking up his children, but he wasn't. He was in the White House sending them off to war. I know this, that in your hearts and your own souls, you are as much responsible for the Vietnam War as I am for killing these people.
1: But he also declared that he had never killed anyone, nor did he order anyone to be killed deflecting responsibility onto the Manson girls.
2: These children were fine in themselves. What they did, if they did whatever they did, is up to them. They will have to explain that to you. What about your children? You say there are just a few. There are many, many more coming in the same direction. They're running in the streets, and they're coming right at you.
1: As he walked out of the courtroom... Manson passed Leslie, Pat, and Susan and said triumphantly,
2: You don't have to testify now.
1: On November 19th, the trial recessed for 10 days. When the trial resumed, Leslie's lawyer, Ronald Hughes, didn't show up in court. Hughes hadn't been a great attorney, but Leslie was still entitled to an attorney. When Hughes still didn't show up after several days, the judge appointed a new lawyer for Leslie, but the new lawyer needed time to prepare, so the trial was adjourned for nearly three weeks, and a manhunt began for Hughes. His body was finally found in mid-January, floating in a stream near where he had gone camping during the trial's original break. By that point, Hughes' corpse was pretty badly decomposed. And while he could have drowned, not many people believed his death was a total accident. When the trial began again, Leslie stood up and suggested the judge had something to do with the disappearance of her lawyer— Charlie started yelling, and all four defendants were removed from the courtroom. When they were allowed back into the courtroom, they disturbed the proceedings again and were again removed. On the way out, Susan grabbed some of Bugliosi's notes and ripped them up. Bugliosi called Susan a bitch, and the defendants were barred from the courtroom for the rest of closing arguments. They were put in a supposedly soundproof room next door where they could listen via headphones. Charlie's attorney droned on for days, and at one point, the jury could hear the defendant yelling from the other room. You're
2: just making things worse.
1: The jury deliberated for ten days, and came back, and declared all four defendants guilty on all charges. During the sentencing phase of the trial, Bugliosi called two defendants, and one of them was Papa. That's right, the same Papa who Charlie thought he had murdered. Turned out, Charlie was pretty easily deceived. He had believed Papa when he lied to him and told Manson he was a Black Panther, and he believed that Papa was dead when he played dead. When Charlie shot him. In fact, the man, also known as Bernard Crowe, had been rushed to the hospital as soon as Charlie had left his house, where he spent 18 days recovering and emerged with Charlie's bullet still lodged in his spine. Charlie had assumed Crowe had been dead until one day when the two men passed each other in a hallway in jail. Now, his testimony would prove that Charlie had no compunction against killing. When the prosecution rested, the defense called a bunch of Manson kids, who pretty much straight up lied. Gypsy, Pat, and Leslie claimed Linda Kasabian had masterminded all the murders. And then Susan took the stand and took responsibility for pretty much everything, saying Charlie had nothing to do with any of it. On Monday, March 26, 1971, Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten were all sentenced to death. Tex Watson's trial would begin in August, and he too would be sentenced to death, although all of these sentences were commuted to life in prison in 1972 when California abolished the death penalty. Clem Grogan was convicted of the murder of Shorty Shea, but the judge in that case decided that Clem was too stupid to know what he was doing and sentenced him to life in prison. The world of the celebrities who had drifted into and out of Manson's orbit over the previous months and years kept on spinning. Around the time of Charlie's conviction, Dennis Hopper finally finished the last movie, and when it screened at the Venice Film Festival that fall... It won the only award it would ever win. By the end of that year, the Beach Boys would release a comeback album called Surf's Up. Also in 1971, Candace Bergen would have one of her best roles in Carnal Knowledge, directed by Mike Nichols. Jack Nicholson would be nominated for an Oscar for Five Easy Pieces and lose. Panic in Needle Park, a film based on the first produced screenplay by Joan Didion, would help make Al Pacino a star. Kenneth Anger would befriend Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, with the two of them bonding over their shared interest in Alistair Crowley. Doris Day would establish an animal welfare organization and sing the song that made her famous, Sentimental Journey, on a hit TV special produced by her son, Terry Melcher, who at the same time was producing the album Bird Maniacs by the band The Birds, and, in the opinion of the birds, was ruining it by layering on too many orchestral strings. In June of 1971, Jim Morrison would die in Paris. And also in 1971, Rolling Stone published a lengthy interview with John Lennon, in which the former Beatle answered once and for all the question, what did you think of Charles Manson?
3: I don't know what I thought when it happened. I just think a lot of the things he says are, are true, uh, that he's a child of the state, pr- made by us. Brilliant. And uh, he took their children in when nobody else would, Well he did. But, of course, he's, he's, he's cracked, all right. Well, he's balmy, he's like any other Beetle kind of fan who reads mysticism into it. I mean, we used to have a laugh, put in this, that, or the other, in, in a light-hearted way that people, some intellectual would read us some symbolic youth generation. What's it? But we also took seriously some part of the role, you know. I mean I don't know what's Helter Skelter got to do with knife in somebody? You <laughs> know, what I don't even I've never listened to the words probably skelter it was just a a, a noise, you know.
1: Behind bars for at least the foreseeable future, the convicted killers found different ways of coping. Charlie moved around a lot. No warden really wanted him in their prison. And he made a doomed deal with the Aryan Brotherhood for protection. Tex and Susan both found religion, and Susan wrote a book called Child of Satan, Child of God, which pissed off Leslie, who thought that believing that some deity would absolve them of their sins was a cop-out. Leslie and Pat both earned college degrees in prison and have spent decades as model prisoners. In 1974, Vincent Bugliosi published his book about the trial, Helter Skelter, which became a major bestseller and reignited Charlie's stardom. Manson stayed in the news thanks to his still-faithful follower, Squeaky Frome, who in September 1975 pointed a Colt 45 at President Gerald Ford in Sacramento. Squeaky, who was wearing a red nun's habit at the time, was tackled by the Secret Service. In November of that year, she was sentenced to life in prison. In 1976, Leslie Van Houden's prison sentence was overturned after the courts ruled that she had been insufficiently represented in her trial after Ronald Hughes had disappeared. She was given a second trial, which ended in a hung jury. While waiting for a third trial, Leslie was set free on bail for six months. She lived in Echo Park, worked in a law office, and even went with a friend to the Oscars, all without incident. But after the third trial, she was found guilty and again convicted of life in prison. Dennis Wilson drowned in 1983. Clem Grogan was paroled in 1985. That same year, on an assignment from Rolling Stone, John Waters was asked to interview Manson. But of everyone associated with the Manson murders, Waters was most interested in Leslie Van Houden, who was no longer under Charlie's control and now had to live with the crimes that she had committed as a brainwashed acid-addled 19-year-old.
4: Leslie Van Houten always seemed the one who could have somehow ended up making movies with us instead of running with the killer doom buggy crowd. She was pretty, out of her mind, rebellious, with fashion daring, a good haircut, and a taste for LSD, just like the girls in my movies. Instead of being a good soldier for Charlie and participating in the murders of Lino and Rosemary Labianco, which she certainly believed was the right thing to do at the time, I wish she had been with us in Baltimore on location for Pink Flamingos, the day divine ate dog shit for real, our own cultural Tate LaBianca. Maybe she would have enjoyed cinematic, antisocial glee and movie anarchy just as much as a misguided race war entitled Helter Skelter and designed by a criminal megalomaniac who believed the Beatles were speaking directly to him. If Leslie had met me instead of Charlie, could she have gone to the Cannes Film Festival instead of the California Institute for Women?
1: Waters wrote to Leslie, who didn't want to be interviewed because she wasn't interested in notoriety for her crimes, but she was willing to let John Waters get to know her. So began a friendship, conducted over the course of 30 years, through letters and prison visits, which led to Waters advocating for Leslie's parole in his book, Role Models.
4: I know the LaBianca kids don't have a mother around anymore because of my friend Leslie. No matter how patient Leslie or her supporters are, we know this terrible fact will never change. But when, if ever, will there have been enough punishment?
1: Waters notes that Leslie has now served more time than any Nazi war criminal who was not executed. Terry Melcher died of cancer in 2004. Susan Atkins died of cancer in jail in 2008. Squeaky Frome was released on parole in 2009. In the present day, Bobby Beausoleil is up for parole this year. Leslie Van Hooden was denied parole for the 20th time in 2013. She's next eligible in 2018, as is Pat Krenwinkel. Charles Manson is still making headlines, although usually not for his fervent environmental activism for which he still has followers doing his bidding. More often than not, he makes headlines for things like his recent engagement to a 27-year-old woman called Star, who, according to an upcoming book proclaiming Manson's innocence, wants to marry Manson so that she can gain control of his corpse and make money taking it on tour. Manson will next be eligible for parole in 2027, at which point he would be 92. It will be amazing if he lives that long, given that so many who have crossed his path, from Sharon Tate to Susan Atkins, Dennis Wilson to Dennis Hopper, have not been so lucky. Some people argue that Charles Manson, who is the son of a petty criminal, and who never had a conventional family life, and who spent most of his pre-capital-F family life incarcerated, never had a chance. But then what about Charles Manson Jr., the first son sired by Charles Manson, with his first wife Rosalie in the mid-1950s? Charles Manson Jr. attempted to disassociate himself from his father's legacy, changing his name to Jay White. But he couldn't escape the knowledge that half of his DNA came from a man who later became America's agreed upon symbol of evil for the second half of the 20th century. In 1993, Jay White stopped his car off of Interstate 70 in Colorado near the border shared with Kansas and shot himself in the head. Charles Manson's Hollywood is a story in which a lot of people died because one of the millions of people who went west looking for fame didn't get it. And then he did get famous, and people continued to die. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guests. Moises Chulan played Richard Nixon, and Nate DiMeo concluded his run as Charles Manson. We'd also like to thank all of the other guests who contributed to this series. Ron Bergman, who played Roman Polanski, Noah Segan, who played Dennis Wilson, Sam Zimmerman, who played Bobby Beausoleil, T. S. Fall, who played Kenneth Anger, and Max Linsky, who played Mel Lyman. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must and follow us on Twitter at RememberThispod. You can rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe to it there or in the Podcatcher of Choice. And please, spread the word about the show, especially over the next few weeks. We're going to be on hiatus until September, while we work on planning, researching, and beginning to write a full new season of episodes. Join us in September, won't you? Good night.
3: This is the end. Beautiful friend. This is the end. My only friend The end Of our Elaborate The end Of El